Welcome to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors read their articles or discuss them with ABR staff. My name is Peter Rose and I'm the editor of ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version or just $60 for print plus online. Now in its 13th year, and worth a total of $12,500, the 2023 Jolly Prize is for an original work of short fiction of between 2,000 and 5,000 words. Full details appear on our website. You have until April 24 to enter the Jolly, one of the world's leading prizes for a new short story. Good luck. Hi there, this is Georgina Arnott, Assistant Editor of ABR, here to let you know that you can advertise on the ABR podcast. For publishers, arts companies, self-published authors, writing centres and others, the ABR podcast represents a cost-effective and unique advertising platform. ABR podcast listeners are engaged in the world of books, arts and ideas. For more information, contact us via the ABR website. My name is Morag Fraser and it's my privilege to introduce Australian Book Review's podcast featuring the work of one of Australia's finest poets, Peter Neville Frederick Porter. Not that he often used that formal string of names. He was born in Brisbane in February 1929. He died in London in 2010 on the 23rd of April, the day we believe to be the birthday of William Shakespeare. ABR's editor, Peter Rose, has often remarked that Peter Porter would have enjoyed that coincidence of dates. Like so many of his talented compatriots, Porter left Australia in the 1950s and sailed for the great world. What an extraordinary exodus of wordsmiths that was. Think... David Maloof, Clive James, Barry Humphreys, Shirley Hassard, Jermaine Greer, Robert Hughes to America. Peter Porter may have been the most self-effacing member of that clutch of stellar wordsmiths. He was described in The Guardian's obituary as having a deep impulse towards anonymity. But he was also one of the most determined and dedicated of them all. Poetry, the business of making with words, the mining of the great gift of the English language he'd inherited. That was his vocation from his teens until he died at the age of 81. Two bewildering events altered the course of Peter Porter's life. The first was the death of his vibrant mother when Porter was only nine. The second was the suicide of his wife, Janice, in 1974. Many years later, Writing in praise of the poet Gwen Harwood, Porter talked of the condition of being displaced from paradise. You'll hear that tremor of loss, coupled with remorse, echoing through the fine poems our readers have chosen, some of them from his acclaimed 1978 volume, The Cost of Seriousness. But note, too, that his very good and astute friend Clive James wrote this about Porter. Peter's tremulous stance as a victim of fate was always more persona than actuality. 
He was, Clive argued, a confident artist in majestic control of his output. Though from the beginning, this is Clive again, Porter had an unusually honest capacity to register the terrifying indifference of circumstances to the individual, no matter how blessedly gifted that individual might be. The proper name for this, says Clive, is humility. Porter returned to Australia in 1974 after 20 years away and here he formed new bonds and both old and new generations of Australian poets and editors sought and relished his company. He then went back to England to his busy, busy writing life and in December of that year alone in her parents' house Janice Porter died. Her widower, Peter Porter, took on the full responsibility for his two daughters, Catherine and Jane, and lived with them as he'd done from 1968, solely on what he could earn from his writing and broadcasting. It was not much. One of his lovely wry daughters noted once that Arthur Boyd, with whom Porter collaborated over four books of poetry and art, that Arthur could sell the door of a fridge which he'd painted for $100,000, whereas Porter could be paid... Ten pounds for a poem, sometimes even forty. Nonetheless, he always found time and energy to encourage and promote the writers who had supported him and his poetry in England from the early 60s. But what's not yet fully recognised is the degree to which Peter Porter influenced and championed Australian writers throughout his life and in an accelerated way from the 1970s. There are so many Australian poets and novelists, from Les Murray to Kate Grenville, who sought and received Porter's attention and his detailed, scrupulous encouragement, some of it practical, a bed for the night at 42 Cleveland Square in London, but most of it critical. Lengthy discussions of their work over lunch or long letters of detailed, unvarnished commentary. Many of our readers could attest to Peter Porter's care and professional encouragement over many, many years. So now, let them speak and let his poetry, in all its variety and depth, be heard. I'm Gig Ryan and I'm reading the last poem Peter published after Schiller, which is, I think, based on actually two Schiller poems, to Laura and to Emma, which were both set to music by Schubert. Schiller's to Laura imagines the soul transported by Laura's music blissfully escaping earth for heaven. In Schiller's poem to Emma, the poet reflects on the transience of life, how the fixture of love or the beloved could possibly dim and wonders whether if love is transient, can it still possibly bear weight? Can it still be true? He, Schiller, is imagining the beloved as being remembered, preserved in his mind if she dies before him. Whereas in Peter's poem, he's imagining his own death and how his wife might survive and recall him. The name Emma also, of course, conjures Thomas Hardy's poems to his late wife. The poem is written in iambic pentameter in elegiac quatrains. After Schiller. Where was I and what then happened to me when half-light moved beyond eclipse? Didn't I foresee the end? And you agree? Love is the clumsiest of partnerships. And would you wish to hear me speak to you of irretrievable darkness by the sea, 
if happiness too far off to travel to and in some narrow space, a leafless tree. The sound of speech, the voice of sense on earth, in this adjunct seems carpented of years. My richness now is nothing but a dearth of tricks for the wiping away of tears. Moving further, may I find again the nub of things we shared, the bridal face whose hurt, if mine, was not mine to explain, but made to seem a human commonplace. With looking upwards hardly in my power and being forced to seek the stars on earth, in this exacting planisphere I cower. I have not moved one footstep from my birth. Weightless in everlasting space, but true to the blindly heavy rules of time, I have become a harbinger for you of every weighted station of your climb. Hi, I'm John Hawke, and this is uh, a poem by Peter Porter from his 1999 volume, Both Ends Against the Middle, and the poem's called Buster Sangue. In the National Gallery of Victoria is a 19th century genre painting showing a ewe on guard beside the body of her dead lamb, while all around her sin-black crows stand silent in the snow. Each time I pass the picture, I find I shudder twice. Once, because good taste is now endemic, and I cannot let the sentimental go unsneered at, I have gone to the trouble of acquiring words like genre and will call them to my aid. But secondly, I know I've been that you, and soon will be that lamb, that there's no way to love mankind but on the improvised coordinates of death, death which rules the snow, the crows, the sheep, the painter, and the drifting connoisseur. Enough of blood, but Abraham's raised knife is seldom halted, and any place for God, even if he didn't give the orders, will be outside the frame. A melody can gong the executioner's axe awake, a painting take away our appetite for lunch, and mother love still walk all night to lull a baby quiet. Whatever gathers over leaf is murderous. We move on through the gallery, praising art, which keeps the types of horror constant so that we may go about our business and forget. My name is Martin Flanagan and I'm going to read Peter Porter's poem, Far Lap in the Melbourne Museum. I met uh, Peter Porter in the 1990s and told him that the last three lines of this poem are the three of the best lines in Australian sports literature. He was actually a bit chuffed. A masterpiece of the taxidermist's art, Australia's top patrician stares gravely ahead at crowded emptiness. As if alive, the lustre of dead hairs, lozenged liquid eyes, black nostrils gently flared, otter satin coat declares, that death cannot visit in this thin perfection. The democratic hero, full of guile, noble, handsome, gentle, haunam. In both Paddock and St Ledger, difference is lost in the welter of money. To see him win, men sold farms, rode miles in floods, stole money, 
locked up wives somehow got in. First away, he led the field and easily won. It was his simple excellence to be best. Tough men owned him, their minds beset by stakes, bookies doubles, crooked jocks. He soon became a byword, public asset, a horse with a nation's soul upon his back. Australia's Ark of the Covenant set before the people perfect, loved like God. And like God to be betrayed by friends, sent to America he died of poisoned food. In Australia, children cried to hear the news. This Prince of Orange knew no bad or good. It was, as people knew, a plot of life. To live in strength, to excel and die too soon. So they drained his body and they stuffed his skin. Twenty years later, on Sunday afternoons, you still can't see him for the rubbing crowds. He shares with Bradman and Ned Kelly some of the dirty jokes you still don't say out loud. It is Australian innocence to love the naturally excessive and be proud of a big boned chestnut gelding who ran fast. This is Sarah Hollandbat, and I'm going to read Peter Porter's An Exequy which is, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful elegies in our language. An Exequy In wet May, in the months of change, in a country you wouldn't visit, strange dreams pursue me in my sleep, black creatures of the upper deep, Though you are five months dead, I see you in guilt's iconography. Dear wife, lost beast, beleaguered child. The stranded monster with the mild appearance whom small waves tease. Andromeda upon her knees in orthodox deliverance. And you, alone, of pure substance, the unformed form of life, the earth which Piero's brushes brought to birth, for all to greet as myth, a thing out of the box of imagining. This introduction serves to sing your mortal death, as Bishop King once hymned in tetrametric rhyme, his young wife, lost before her time. Though he lived on for many years, his poem each day fed new tears to that unreaching spot, her grave. His lines a baroque architrave, the Sunday poor with bottled flowers would bypass in their morning hours esteeming ragged, natural life, most dearly loved, most gentle wife. Yet, looking back when at the gate and seeing grief in formal state upon a sculpted angel group, were glad that men of God could stoop to give the dead a public stance 
and freeze them in their mortal dance. The words and faces proper to my misery are private. You would never share your heart with those whose only talents to suppose, nor from your final childish bed raise a remote confessing head. The channels of our lives are blocked. The hand is stopped upon the clock. No one can say why hearts will break and marriages are all opaque. A map of loss, some posted cards, the living house reduced to shards, the abstract hell of memory, the pointlessness of poetry. These are the instances which tell of something which I know full well. I owe a death to you. One day the time will come for me to pay when your slim shape from photographs stands at my door and gently asks if I have any work to do or will I come to bed with you? Oscala enigmatica. I'll climb up to that attic where the curtain of your life was drawn. Sometime between despair and dawn. I'll never know with what halt steps you mounted to this plain eclipse. But each stair now will station me a black responsibility and point me to that shut down room. This be your due appointed tomb. I think of us in Italy, gin and Chianti fueled. We move in a trance through paradise, feeding at last our starving eyes. Two people of the English blindness doing each masterpiece the kindness of discovering it, from Baldovinetti to Venice's most obscure jetty. A true unfortunate traveller, I depend upon your nurse's eye to pick the altars where no grinner puts us off our tourists' dinner. And in hotels to bandy words with Genevan girls and talking birds, to wear your feet out following me to night's end and true amity and call my rational fear of flying a paradigm of holy dying. And, oh my love, I wish you were once more with me at night, somewhere, in narrow streets, applauding wines, the moon above the Apennines, as large as logic, and the stars, most middle-aged of avatars, as bright as when they shone for truth upon untried and avid youth. The rooms and days we wandered through shrink in my mind to one. There you lie quite absorbed by peace. The calm which life could not provide is balm in death. Unseen by me, you look past bed and stairs 
and half-read book, eternally upon your home. The end of pain, the left alone. I have no friend or intercessor, no psychopomp or true confessor, but only you who know my heart in every cramped and devious part. Then take my hand and lead me out. The sky is overcast by doubt. The time has come. I listen for your words of comfort at the door. Oh, guide me through the shoals of fear. For ich der dich nicht, ich bin bei dir. My name is Philip Salem, and I have chosen Peter Porter's poem Non Piangere Liu, the title of which is the less well-known tenor aria from Turandot, an opera Peter felt very keenly. Peter and I had discussed our love of opera and its extraordinary singers, and Turandot, and I always feel the great UC Bierling's rendition of this aria whenever I read the title of the poem. Just before the aria, Calaf has been bedazzled by Turandot and is confident he can solve the three riddles. Turandot has set all presumptuous suitors. She is immortal and heartless, so to fail her challenge means death. Liu has tried to convince him he may die and how he should instead protect his old father and herself. She is in love with him. She begins weeping. In the aria, Calaf tells her not to weep, non piangere, and ignores her. Later, in order to protect him, Liu commits suicide. This poem was written in the years after Peter's first wife had committed suicide, making the poem a lyric of deep emotional complexity. Puccini died just before he completed Turandot, so there might be a theme of unfinished business here too. Life cut short by suicide, the state of the poet's life thereafter, his guilt and grief, his awareness of all the bitter ironies, all spoken through this short but heartbreaking poem. Non Piangere Liu A card comes to tell you you should report to have your eyes tested. But your eyes melted in the fire and the only tears, which soon dried, fell on the chapel. Other things still come. Invoices, subscription renewals, shiny plastic cards promising credit. Not much for a life spent in the service of reality. You need answer none of them, nor am I asking you for one drop of succour in my own hell. Do not cry, I tell myself. The whole thing is a comedy, and comedies end happily. The fire will come out of the sun, and I shall look in the heart of it. My name's Peter Rose. Moro Fraser, whose biography of Peter Porter we look forward to with such anticipation, has spoken in her introduction of Peter's generosity towards successive generations of poets around the world. I'm just one of countless poets who benefited from his curiosity, his active support, and his inimitable talk. To receive one of his incisive, 
poem-by-poem appraisals of one's new manuscript was an honour and a spur. I first met Peter in 1987 when I helped him market his poetry at OUP. This led to a close friendship and a long correspondence. I went on to publish his Oxford book of modern Australian verse in 1996. When I moved to ABR, he became a senior contributor as a poet, of course, but also a reviewer and superlative essayist. But long before I met Peter Porter, long before those treasured associations of later years, I was reading him in periodicals like the TLS, not even realising he was Australian, so green was I. I guess I was drawn to him because of his combination of the aphoristic, the personal and the cultural. He was a poet, I dared to think, I might be so bold as to try to learn something from during my slow apprenticeship as a poet. It's an influence and inspiration that never wanes. The poem I've chosen comes from Peter's great book, The Cost of Seriousness, published in 1978. It leads the reader upstairs to the most intimate, cramped spaces of his first marriage. In the poem, his wife quotes Portia, wife of Julius Caesar, who, in Shakespeare's play, asks, Dwell I but in the suburbs of your good pleasure? To which the poet responds with a quote from the 17th century New England Puritan Michael Wigglesworth, who, in his poem The Day of Doom, wrote, A crime it is, therefore in bliss you may not hope to dwell, but unto you I shall allow the easiest room in hell. I heard Peter read this poem many times, including one memorable reading with Les Murray in Adelaide in the mid-1990s, when Peter broke down as he read it, the only time I ever heard him weep in public. The Easiest Room in Hell At the top of the stairs is a room one may speak of only in parables. It is the childhood attic, the place to go when love has worn away, the origin of the smell of self. We came here on a clandestine visit and in the full fire of indifference. We sorted out books and let the children sleep here away from creatures. From its windows, ruled by willows, the flatlands of childhood stretched to the water meadows. It was the site of a massacre, of the running down of the body to less even than the soul, the tribe's revenge on everything. It was the heart of England, where the ballerinas were on points and locums laughed through every evening. Once it held all the games, in consequences, misalliance, frustration, even mendacity, adultery and manic depression. But that was just its alibi. All along it was home, a home away from home. Having such a sanctuary, we who parted here will be reunited here. You asked in an uncharacteristic note, Dwell I but in the suburbs of your good pleasure? 
I replied, to us has been allowed the easiest room in hell. Once it belonged to you, now it is only mine. Hi, I'm Judith Bishop, and I'm speaking to you from unceded Wurundjeri Woiwurrung country. I'm going to read for you the picture of nobody from Peter's 1978 collection, The Cost of Seriousness. It's a very poignant poem that's also something like a hall of mirrors. The poem gives us the once very alive Peter Porter reflecting in writing itself the shadow of his mind and heart at work on the ways that he and his then recently deceased wife are present and absent in photos from before and after her death. A new series of photographs presents him with the chance to reframe his life or move to a new album, as he writes, but they fail to overcome the residual fear of death and loss. The poem opens, We are always being framed somewhere, and you can hear the pun on being framed, both in the sense of being set up as a criminal and in the sense of life being brought into a sharp and momentary focus. I'm reminded of Roland Barthes' unforgettable essay about a photograph of his mother, Camera Lucida, in which he writes, I can never see or see again in a film certain actors whom I know to be dead without a kind of melancholy, the melancholy of photography itself. I experience the same emotion listening to the recorded voices of dead singers. I suspect, reading this poem, that Peter Porter felt very much the same. The Picture of Nobody We are always being framed somewhere. A camera, an eye of memory, is recounting inches along from the pea trellis, the cement block fence, the rotary clothesline. A leg is not quite where it seemed, and an arm forward on the thigh strikes a posture more aggressive than the smiling face. Then, beside the church where a clapped-out pigeon fell, to be picked up by a not-very-poor-looking Italian, was she standing higher on the steps, or perhaps just out of sight, to the left? The Hôtel de Beurre was surely closer to the canal. The photograph should smell of cleansing and dark cloths. Years after, another presence makes itself felt. Someone who wasn't there when we bought the angle-poised lamp and were snapped in the street. A shape which vanished from the wharfside beer garden and the Japanese bridge over an English river. Now he seems so very like me. A sentimental assumption. We put up our own coordinates, the bars of our prison. Her own picture, the doppelganger. She was already haunting those September stones with her death, just as at seven the teeth stick out, which later slope in, rodent-like. The wave freezes at its crest. Bring the coordinates together to get us out of unhappiness. We are in limbo, and his picture is quite clear now. He will move to the new album, the later, more hopeful photos over the same ground. Three cats on top of each other, behind a grill in Venice, 
or a window of star-shaped ice creams. No wonder there are ghosts. What we leave behind is deadly. The melody is played, a poisonous, long-lasting scent circles the garden. Spring again. Our friend has borrowed a loved face to bring the bad news to the still living. There is nobody else in the picture, yet fear looks out. This is Ian Dixon. Exit Pursued by a Bear is a witty, caustic occasional piece commissioned in 1974 by the Globe Playhouse Trust, an organisation set up by the American director-producer Sam Wanamaker to promote the reconstruction of the Globe Theatre, a project that finally came to fruition in 1997. To elucidate some of the references, Cott was a Polish literary critic whose Shakespeare Our Contemporary was required reading at the time. Brook is Peter Brook, who had just directed a very successful acrobatic production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Bond is Edward Bond, whose play Bingo depicts an ageing Shakespeare in unhappy retirement in Stratford, and Brady and Hindley are Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, who abducted, assaulted and murdered five children in a case known as the Moore's Murders. Anyway, here's the poem. Exit Pursued by a Bear Others abide our question, thou art free. Art, not an artist, but an industry, and to a nation fallen on hard times, worth more than North Sea oil or Yorkshire mines. Indeed, our bardic tours and Shakespeare tomes, with the royal family, Scotch and Sherlock Holmes, Convince the USA and EEC that though we're not what once we used to be, if there's some sale which needs a bit of class, an English accent's all that you can ask. Our actors, raised on Bolingbroke and York, can hold their own in late-night TV talk. Directors trained by England's classic teachers bring something more to ads and second features. And poet dons, with ear and taste defective, on 16th century love life turn detective. Track amorous ladies with Italian looks through sonnets, diaries, letters and part books. Our GNP, from Inverness to Flatford, could take a hint from tourist-battered Stratford. An asset nursed need never be depleted. The English language cannot be defeated. We owe this to the man for whom we're here, our superstar, our JC, our Shakespeare. And if one's heart sinks in the London library or trying to work the BM without bribery, confronted with the Shakespeare section looming above us like a ship's hull, that's assuming this metaphor impresses jet age readers, the mind that most debased of dirty feeders is more than pleased to see 400 years of parasitic comment raised in tears. Unsought, unread, uncared for and undusted. The whole life's work for which dead men once lusted, grabbed office, wheedled, schemed and struggled through. Reduced to nothing 
after much ado. But exegesis lives and dies. It's not whatever you may think you clan have caught the point. Got the plays in fine editions. We know interpolations and additions. And may, setting scholarship among the sins, then say Shakespeare wrote than two noble kinsmen. At least, the very best bits. And then stretch a point and reassign to worthy Fletcher all that tedious play, King Henry the Eighth. Like Wolsey's bladders, not much puffed of late. While praising Shakespeare, let us not forget contemporaries who left us in their debt. Those men whom Swinburne praised in mermaid dress. The more of Middleton's is not the less of Shakespeare's glory. And the broken heart, if not quite Antony, is stunning art. May they receive as many new productions as teenage Romeos their set seductions. Let all the kudos this great name has stored be used to recommend the plays of Ford. But now, alas, I reach the nasty part of this encomium. Dramatic art is only half alive upon the page. What then of Shakespeare in the modern age? I've sat through Troilus in the Second Empire, Lear in local government, one that gathers samphire, dreadful trade, but surely not of Dover's, since Edgar's dressed to play for Bristol Rovers. Macbeth in trench coats, and his guilty lady sonambulizing fully frontal, Brady and Hindley to the life, as if the bard were playing understudy to Dessard. Then, Hamlet on risotto, lines all diced and dished up like a bowl of savoury rice. Still, none of this is quite as bad as what TV has done. Sans time, sans lines, sans plot, sans everything but window dressing, got through with much relief since money's time. The classics on the box can be a crime. Then there's Shakespeare, politicised by Brecht, hung up by Brooke, portrayed by Bond, and wrecked in any one of twenty thousand ways, the mortal genius of some thirty plays, whose lives, as Mr Schoenbaum rightly says, are many as a cat's, since each enhancer sees him like himself, a necromancer, a Catholic, a crypto-queer, a Cornish warlock, he only lacks his own person from Porlock. But always, there, behind that Stratford bust, or in those undug feet of common dust, the grand enigma of each generation, surviving even fashion and translation. And, like his favourite Ovid, ever-changing gods and men in nature, rearranging the world we others fancy is opaque, or cannot understand, or simply fake, until it seems creation's paradigm, a timeless dream which yet unfolds in time. I'll finish now this commonplace recital by just explaining why I chose its title. It's from, of course you know, The Winter's Tale. The man, the bear rendered tooth and nail, was loyal Antigonus, the child Perdita, one of the nicest heroines by far, too good to serve up as an ursine entree. But think, 
The man who put her in the play had daughters of his own. How did he treat them? His wife, his son, his family. One fact alone, I dare to say tonight. Shakespeare's younger daughter couldn't write. Her mark is on some document, a cross. Imagination must be at a loss to think his mind, though blackened by his spouses, cared less for daughters than for Stratford houses. It opens up the way for Royal Lear, an avenue of anger lit by fear. The bear is death, which chases him so long and never can be quietened with a song. Each creature of the plays a funeral mute, lamenting Orpheus and his broken lute. And on some dismal shore, the bones are cracked, the genius of the universe ransacked. I'm Lisa Gorton. I'm on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung of the Kulin Nation. I acknowledge their elders. Also that sovereignty was never ceded. One of the things that I love about Peter Porter's poetry is his way of speaking to the reader. When he uses that syllable I, he doesn't set himself up as some avatar of our narcissism, some ideal figure through which we can admire our sentiments or sensitivities. He stays stubbornly, astringently himself, talking partly to himself, partly to us, partly back to the language. I'm going to read his poem, What I Have Written, I Have Written. The title quotes what Pontius Pilate said after he handed someone over to be crucified, though himself finding no fault in him. So, what I have written, I have written. It is the little stone of unhappiness which I keep with me. I had it as a child and put it in a drawer. There came a heap of paper to put beside it. Letters, poems, a brittle dust of affection, sallowed by memory. Aphorisms came, not evil, but the competition of two goods brings you to the darkened room. I gave the stone to a woman and it glowed. I set my mind to hydraulic work, lifting words from their swamp. In the light from the stone, her face was bloated. When she died, the stone returned to me, a present from reality. The two goods were still contending. From wading pools, the children grew to darken gardens with their shadows. Duty is better than love. It suffers no betrayal. Beginning again, I notice I have less breath, but the joining is more golden. There is a long way to go among gardens and alarms. After dinner sleeps, peopled by toads and all the cries of childhood. Someone comes to say my name, 
has been removed from the honourable company of scribes. Books in the room turn their backs on me. Old age will be the stone and me together. I have become used to its weight in my pocket and my brain. To move it from lining to lining, like Beckett's tramp. To modulate it to the major or throw it at the public. All is of no avail. But I'll add to the songs of the stone. These words I take from my religious instruction. Complete responsibility. Let them be entered in the record. What I have written, I have written. I'm David McCooey, and I have chosen to read James Joyce sings Il Mio Tesoro from the 1972 collection Preaching to the Converted. I met Peter Porter a handful of times, and it was always a pleasure. The first time was in about 1987, when he was a writer-in-residence at the University of Western Australia, where I was a student. Peter was extremely kind and helpful when I screwed up my courage to show him my bad first poems. He reminded me a little of my father. The two were almost the same age. Perhaps for that reason I have chosen to read a poem about James Joyce, that great modernist writer and author of Ulysses, who was also the great writer Fathers and Sons. A more accurate reason for my choice, though, is that I love biographical poems, especially how they can condense a life into a handful of resonant, sometimes comic, images. I don't think you need to be a Joyce scholar to get something from this poem, though these days, of course, Google can make it easier to parse elements of a poem like this. Il mio tesoro means my treasure, and it's an aria for tenor from Mozart's Don Giovanni. Joyce was an amateur tenor himself. Of course, I foolishly chose a poem with Italian in it, two lines from the aria in question, which translate as that I shall not return except with tidings of death, that being Don Ottavio's vengeful promise against Don Giovanni. I can't do much about my pronunciation of Italian, I'm afraid, but I won't attempt an Irish accent, even though the poem is spoken, as it were, by James Joyce. The McCormack referred to, by the way, is John McCormack, the celebrated Irish tenor, who Joyce uh, did hear sing, and you can too if you listen to his recording of Il Mio Tesoro on YouTube. James Joyce sings Il Mio Tesoro. Something to warm your back teeth, even if your shirt's making its presence felt. Some piece of calculated impertinence. My theory about Hamlet can drop until I get these divisions right. I mean the way McCormack gets them. Casol de stragi e morti, nunzio voglio tona. The peace of the fathers be with you, and all the browning photographs of Europe. Among the clean mountains the mad are trained like roses on a trellis, pruned for love. My books are easier to write than read, and by God that's the proper division of labour. Nobody but me has produced literature as great as music. I make an exception of the author of Hamlet. 
Do I hear some idiot asking about Proust and Singe and Pound and a lot of names I think I saw on raisin packets? A fine tenor voice, the piece of great art. I never knew when to stop. If I'd been christened Stanislaus, I'd have claimed the throne of Poland. My name is Judith Beveridge, and I've chosen to read Peter Porter's poem 50 Years On. It begins with a quote from Goethe, which reads, Every invention has something arbitrary. To Carthage then I came, but this was London, waiting for the train from rain-veiled Tilbury. Just as I thought, I said, coming on deck and going below. Hell is a city just like London, but I knew I had to find a working hell. I'd lived too long in books. The thing I didn't know was that I sought a London which was in me from the start. Not fair to this fair city, but if hearts can bring their darkness with them, then I brought my dark provincial hours, veranda lit, to match the Mayhew shadows of these streets. I came, I saw, I conjured, I am here. Of my ignoble comrades, most are dead. The end is what the end is, open sea, if mind can cross the sandbar of its fears. Fifty years ago, I'd never have quoted a word of Goethe's. I gave up hope to follow a more formal entropy. Unchanging stars parade their hemispheres. I'm John Kinsella, and I'm reading a poem by Peter Porter entitled A Daughter's Life. And it's a response to a self-portrait by Mariella Robusti Tintoretto. In an email to me, Peter wrote something very interesting about the process of composing this poem. He said, I had intended to write a properly free verse poem, but as happens so often, I found that the ideas roused by the subject being a formal piece wouldn't submit to untrammeled excursion. A Daughter's Life The distance from God the Father to the Father God is charted in the past book in my hand. What we play or sing is a bequeathing, manner picked up on Malamoco's sand, as merchants gather their celestial food. The daughter of a great painter who painted the great should be ever dutiful and strict. Daddy, I hardly knew you my lifetime through. An artist's task is properly to depict Christ the inventor in Man the Ape. San Rocco's paint is music, and it's music paint. I learned to be at all times smartly dressed. The ladder of the octave, its foot set in the grave, filled to the angels Jacob saw and blessed, esoteric, ludic, and beside the point. By repute, how publicly serene, our serenissima, its sun-swept towers, its galleys, and its jails. This garment's golden thread runs in my head while shipwrights hammer home their iron nails and crane by crane set death on the water. And I know the end of my beginning is the beginning of my end. One day a daughter will become a mother. I lick the silver spoon, draw 
fever from the moon and watch the ends of life embrace each other, meticulously limbing a self to step behind. This is Peter Goldsworthy. The poem of Peter Porter's I am planning to read is first poem of the last book, which is the first poem in his last book, Corral at the Crossing, a book which I guess is um, preoccupied with last things. First poem of the last book. The creature comfort sonnets hide themselves in archives of the brain, set to undo both personality and the spermal glue of first ambition, destined for high shelves. They've judged their skills unready, tailless twelves among fourteens, prosodically askew. They reason tiresomely and ask, Are you the Blakeian worm by night, the one that delves? Lace me up to Kensian command, all my loose versifying I abjure. Confessions drip, self-pity's one night stand. In this new book, no reaching for last things, not nature's, God's or history's armature. Just kitchen, garden, bedroom splinterings. My name is Philip Mead, and as part of the special Peter Porter podcast for Australian Book Review, I'm going to read Porter's poem, on this day I complete my 40th year. It is a poem from his 1970 collection, The Last of England, and it's about midlife malaise. The poet looks around him at his life in London and compares himself to the romantic hero Lord Byron, whose last poem, written at Misolonghi in Greece where he died, he titled, On This Day I Complete My 36th Year. Byron's poem is about how the flower and fruits of love are gone as he dreams of an honourable death in the cause of Greece's War of Independence. Porter's poet, who remembers his Queensland childhood, is praying that his health will hold out and that his commitment to art will prove a stay against disappointed ambitions. You may be able to hear the variations in the form of Porter's four-line stanzas as sapphics with their shorter final line. The poem is also a single long sentence. On this day I complete my 40th year. Although art is autonomous, somebody has to live in the poet's body and get the stuff out through his head. Someone has to suffer, especially the boring sociology of it and the boring history, the class war, and worst of all, the matter of good luck, that is to say bad luck, for in the end it is his fault, that is your fault, not to be born Lord Byron and saying that there has already been a Lord Byron is no excuse. He found it no excuse. To have a weatherboard house and a white paling fence and poinsettias and palm nuts instead of Newstead Abbey and owls and graves, and not even a club foot. Above all, to miss the European gloom in the endless 11 o'clock heat among the lightweight suits and warped verandas, an apprenticeship, not a pilgrimage. The girl down the road vomiting dimity incisored peanuts, the bristly boss speaking with a captain's certainty to the clerk, we run a neat ship here. Well, at 40, the grievances lie around like terminal moraine, and they mean nothing unless you pay a man in frogmore to categorise them for you.
but there are two sorts of detritus. One a pile of moon ore, the workings of the astonished mole who breathes through your journalism the air of another planet. His silver castings are cherished in books and papers, and you're grateful for what he can grub up, though you know it's little enough beside the sea of tranquility. The second sort is a catalogue of bitterness, just samples of death and fat worlds of pain that sail like airships through bedsit posters and never burst or deflate. Far more real than a screaming letter, more embarrassing than an unopened statement from the bank, more memorable than a small dishonesty to a parent. But to make a resolution will not help. Greece needs liberating, but not by me. I'm likely to find my sapphics not verses, but ladies in Queensway. So I'm piling on fuel for the dark, jamming the pilgrims on tubular chairs, while the NHS doctor checks my canals, my ports and my purlieus, praying that the machine may work a while longer. Since I haven't programmed it yet, suiting it to a divisive music that is the mind's swell, and which in my unchosen way I marked out so many years ago in the hot promises as a gift I must follow, howling to my art. As the master put it while he was still young, these are the epiphanies of a poor light, the ghosts of mid-channel, the banging doors of the state Sirocco. I'm Andrew Taylor, and the poem of Peter Porter's that I've chosen to read is called Down Cemetery Road. Many years ago, I met up with Peter one afternoon in a London pub after visiting a music shop. Peter asked me what I'd bought, and I told him a symphony by Prokofiev. He gave a loud theatrical sigh and said, Oh, all those artfully wrong notes. The music that Peter loved, that he knew intimately and profoundly, was Baroque, and particularly that of J.S. Bach, to which he refers in this poem. Bach's music is characterised by a complex interweaving of voices, instrumental and vocal, which comes most often to a peaceful and harmonious resolution. Peter Porter's poetry is similarly complex, in this poem, he contemplates death, a frequent theme in his work. The title, Down Cemetery Road, doesn't simply refer to a place near Leipzig, but to the inevitable journey of life down the road to death. But the poem ends with a quotation in German from the text of Bach's Cantata BWV 8 that brings the poem to a note of quiet acceptance. There are, in fact, three quotations in German. The first, Liebste Gott, wenn wird ich sterben, can be translated as, Dearest God, when will I die? The second, Herrscher über Tod und Leben, is ruler over death and life. And the very moving concluding final phrase, Mach einmal meine Ende gut, is when it comes, make my end good. Down Cemetery Road The wind brings the Sunday bells. Come to church, good people. But for me, 
There's similar acra of the great bell in my chest, clouting out the end. This comes of keeping one's nose to the moral north, where gods go when they die. Oh, how pleased they are to leave their Babylonian captivity, and how strange that religion comes from the east, where tourists see only commerce. Fanaticism seeking blue-eyed converts in the claggy fens. But not the point of this poem. The chorale of Bach's, which moves me most, is a tune of 1713, a real contemporary, Liebs the God, Van Wehrdich Derben. The tune is Daniel Vetter's The Treatment, Bach's. There's the soft flush of earth when corpse and men move among the matutinal flowers. Bells like teeth touching, the towers of Leipzig carving a Lutheran world in friendly slices, that warm sententiousness we know as death. Almost chirpy music, but don't ask the corpse his view. Perhaps he sees that transcendental radish bed promised by the tame Tibetans. After a lifetime of bloodletting, we deserve a vegetable future. The flutes and oboes pilfer grief. We have earned this joyful gruesomeness. I think I was six when first I thought of death. I've been religious ever since. Good taste lay in wait and showed me avenues of music, which opened on the road to Leipzig Cemetery, the alder trees in leaf and the choristers waiting for their dinner. Herrscher über Tod und Leben we northerners are really Greek, stoic, old and held by oracles. Tears running down like soot. My daily prayer, mach einmal, meine Ende gut. Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to AVR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.